Welcome to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And you know that is right. Good afternoon, Harry Alexander, Bunker to Friends, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. This is Emil Franzing's Voices of the West. I'm not saying anything till I talk to my lawyer. Okay. You be that way. Our guest today, uh, former Olympian uh, Scott Sargent. But before we get to him, we've got some housekeeping to take care of. Yeah, I just want we. I got word yesterday from uh, Gene Freeze that William Smith had passed away, and I, I don't really have much to say other than the guy was a real a man's man. He was a brawler and a drinker, and he he knew how to live life, and he also. Uh, just entertained us a lot. He yeah. was, you know, I, I, we were talking before the show about uh, Darker Than Amber, Amber, which was a contemporary mystery movie. Uh, he did a fight in that with uh, Rod Taylor that's one of the great movie fights. But also, uh, and this is, this is in passing, I feel bad that we didn't mention it sooner, but stunt coordinator, stuntman, and film director Buddy Van Horn passed away in May. And he worked with Clint Eastwood from 72 to 2011, you know, double Clint and then mm-hmm. ran all his shows, directed second unit. And he, we lost him. We also lost uh, Chuck Hicks, who was a, a hell of a, hell of a stuntman, fight man, could do everything, was a boxer, was a football player, with MVP for three years. Uh, and uh, we lost him, he was in May also, and it just, you know, it's kind of sad, man. Just uh, the one last one here. Oh, yeah, Ned Beatty mm-hmm. passed away. I worked with Ned on Life, uh, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. And he did work on Ballad of Gregory O. Cortez, Big Bad John, Legend of O.G. Tart, Streets of Laredo, Crazy Horse. Uh, was a great, great character actor. Yes. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor for One Day's Work in <laughs> Network. Can't can't beat can't beat that. <laughs> but that's 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 just bringing us the up to, up to the start. other uh, passing to talk about. The world's tallest horse died in June. Oh, yeah. After living for 20 years on an 85-acre Wisconsin farm, the story is from the Washington Examiner. Big Jake, six feet ten inches, 2,500 pounds, certified as the world's tallest living equestrian in 2010 by the Guinness World Record folk. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> the uh, upon his birth, the Belgian gelding weighed 240 pounds, far above the 140 pound his average. Said, "Ouch." Yeah, I bet. Um, wonder why the mare had a long face. Um, <clears throat> and uh, let's see, his uh, diet consisted of a bale and a half of hay, as well as about 30 quarts of mixed grains and oats. And after finishing his work for the day, the horse would take a nap at 1 p.m audibly snoring in his sleep. Well, you know, you, you know Cheech and John... Ta- Cheech and John. Yeah, they had the world's highest horse. Yes, they did. <laughs> the only- oh, one other thing, too. Yesterday was Eddie Dean's birthday. Ah, yes. Memory, happy birthday, happy Eddie. Birthday. And the, the only uh, other horse in history to grow taller than Big Jake was uh, Samson, a Shire gelding who was measured at 7 feet 2 inches, weighing in at 3,359 pounds, in Bedfordshire, England, in 1850. How'd you, how'd you like to do a saddle fall off of him? I don't think so. To bring a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know what the horse had a long face because all the other horses were asking, "How's the weather up there?" Yeah. <clears throat> I know we're here. All, we're, Thank you, Harry. We're here all week. Thank you so much. Our <laughs> guest is uh, Scott Sargent. <laughs> Scott, a former Olympian athlete, he's now uh, a. He, he does motivational speeches. And Scott, welcome to the program. Motivator, Scott. Hi there, guys. Thank you so much. I'll do my best. You guys sound pretty motivated already. <laughs> no, it's the sugar. Yeah, too much of it. <laughs> well, let's let's get let's get to the beginning here. What uh, uh, of what how this all came about that we have you on this program? You and Todd Roberts are, are friends, and uh, Todd approached me about having you on the show. 
and uh, I thought it was a great idea after reading all about you. And the reason I think so is because you, sir, are that inspiration for, I think, so for so many of the pioneers who uh, moved west. Uh, you were injured in an accident, uh, which later turned out to not be an accident. You were a paraplegic, and you said, to hell with this, I don't have time for it, and you uh, walked again. I mean... You know, what, you know, what, well, what do you say? Let's, just, let, let's, let's put out the disclaimer right away. Folks, this is not a cowboy show today, but it is about the spirit of the cowboys. Of the cowboy right. and, and the people that came west. Yeah, yeah. And, and the pioneer. And Scott, you know, he, 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 he embodies a pioneer. It. But he, he, he shows that true grit that it took yeah. to go on a journey that everybody said, you're nuts. So, but that's also you can't, not you can't do the it. fact that Scott does love a few westerns. Well, there are some that that register with him. Well, so, that's good. You know, we'll question Scott, about those later. Start babbling, please. <laughs> oh, Scott, what, what's the difference, Scott, between a because I know you do both, but a mental performance coach and a motivated speaker? Well, you know, the speaking part and. Um, Getting in front of larger audiences is, uh, you know, a conversation to be able to inspire people. I, I like the term inspirational speaker a little bit more so. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk sometimes about the difference between inspiration, motivation, and desperation. Um, and sometimes it's as places of desperation that they get us moving. But inspiration is really what's going to bring us to our, our highest achievement and, uh, and, our, and our greatest enjoyment and the journey. Um, but the, the mental performance coaching is, you know, temp- typically work that I'm doing either one-on-one or in smaller mm-hmm. groups. But being able to get in with the individual, you know, with their experiences, their their mindset, their belief system, you know, their unique challenges and, and circumstances they're dealing with, their resources, and empowering them to be the best that they can be in, in the face of adversity, but also toward, you know, achieving the goals and excellence that they want to pursue. Well, you know, it's... it's- it's uh, one of the things there. You left out perspiration, which I think that's that's important. <laughs> but uh, oh, absolutely! I remember Thomas Edison. One of my favorite quotes: "Genius is one percent inspiration and ninety-nine percent perspiration." Yeah. There you go. Well, you know, I want to go back to hammer throw. What got? I know you were an athlete in high school and everything, but what got you into hammer throw? Because that really. Had to, had to uh, put you on a life path there, you know, crying out for the Olympics, uh, you know, all of that stuff. But that's that's one of the most difficult events, and it's got nothing but perspiration. Yeah. Right. Well, it definitely was an interesting journey. You know, I, I grew up um, with a love of sports. I actually grew up primarily playing soccer and baseball. And uh, I was also a very good student. My mom was a high school chemistry teacher, and my father was an engineer. Um, he was also very much a rugged individualist. His favorite things were to go to you know the tip of Baja, Mexico, or the middle of the desert, and out in the middle of the sea, and get as far away as possible, and then have something break down, and have to be the MacGyver and figure out how to fix it. So um, my mom would sometimes joke that he would have been the ultimate pioneer. Um, but I, you know, I definitely got a great love of the outdoors uh, from him, and uh, he actually died when I was 13, though. So mm-hmm. um, it was a pretty traumatic event, and my mom had just gone back to teaching, and um, I was very fortunate, you know, with my with my childhood. I, you know, successful middle class family, uh, raised in a nice area with good opportunities for school and scouts and so many other things and activities, but. Um, you know, I did have a contentious relationship with my father. It wasn't all, you know, rosy and, and, and wonderful. So, you know, there were some conflicts there. But my mom had just gone back to teaching, and bless her heart, you know, that I have a brother two years younger. Um, here she's got two, you know, boys ending their teens and uh, managed to work her tail off and really provide us a pretty amazing uninterrupted quality of life and um, I'm just so appreciative of that and, and I think that certainly instilled some of that true grit you know I got to give a, a, a tip of the hat to my mom here for you know her her grit and her resolve and what she did in, in the face of that adversity that she uh, faced but um, it was not long after that in high school that I was kind of running up against some of the politics in baseball 
And uh, again, one of the things my dad had never really just been interested or participated around my athletics. And I was always a superstar, you know, but sometimes the parents who were involved, you know, tend to be able to give their, their kids more opportunities and so forth. So I had a hard time with that. And um, one of my best friends and neighbors across the street ran cross country and distance in track and field. And him and his dad, you know, hearing me complain about this situation, they'd be like, well, hey, you know, come out for track, throw the shot put or something. And at the time, I thought the shot was just about the dumbest thing you could ever <laughs> have made up for a sport. You know, I tried it once in junior high as a 12-pound um, ball for the high school boys. And you've got the steel ball that you hold your shoulder, you know, and you just push it. Mm-hmm. And the thing went like maybe 15, 20 feet. <laughs> and I'm used to kicking a soccer ball, you know, half the um, field or, you know, hitting home runs and grand oh. slams and baseball. Yeah. So it wasn't really that exciting. <clears throat> and um, But it got to the point where I'm like, you know what, it can't be worse than, than what I felt like I was putting up with. So uh, I shifted gears my sophomore year of high school, went out for track, kind of was surprised, had some fun and some success. And I really appreciated the team uh, experience of training together and going to competitions and cheering each other on at meets. But then when it came down to the competition, you know, it really was down to us as an individual in terms of how we would perform and what the results would be. So, you know, sometimes in soccer, you know, a ref might make a call that, you know, I might not agree with or I might play a great game, but our team's still lost. And so those, a lot of those factors kind of got taken out of the equation the more black and white um, and again I had some fun some success uh, that neighbor uh, John uh, Reyes uh, had uh, gave me a little bit of coaching and uh, another uh, high school Los Alamitos high school uh, alumni came back and gave me some coaching and I broke the 50 foot barrier and went on to winning the, the league in the uh, Empire League this way back in <laughs> 87 now and uh, I had a lot of fun and success but you know I thought wow that's great and um, didn't really think much beyond that, but I chose UC San Diego uh, for the area. I love La Jolla there in San Diego, the proximity of Scripps Institute and geography. I thought, you know, if I didn't like engineering, I could always shift gears into marine biology. Mm-hmm. And um, I went out to talk to the track house about throwing the shots just to be active and athletic. You know, I didn't really think that I had the potential beyond just being a, a you know competitive college athlete, perhaps. And he watched me throw, and he's like, you know, well, you got some potential here, you know, a few things to work on. Hey, by the way, have you ever thought about throwing that hammer? And I look at him like, what the hell is that? And <laughs> I literally, in my head, I imagined in my mind's eye some kind of like a hatchet throw into a tree. <laughs> and he's like, no, here you go. It's, 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 a, bol- it's a 16-pound ball, so it's basically like a bowling ball, uh, about the size of maybe a large grapefruit. Uh, at the end of a four-foot wire, so instead of just pushing it you know, from your shoulder, you spin this thing around, you actually do pirouette turns, three, four turns inside of a seven-foot concrete circle, and uh, at the collegiate level, a good throw, you know, you're getting that thing going over 200 feet. Good so if goodness. you imagine a bowling ball going wow. 200 feet. Watch out. And it's a pretty dynamic and ballistic wow. and powerful event. Wow. Yeah, but it's also very graceful and very, very yeah. complicated technique. Mm-hmm. A lot of strength and power, but a lot of relaxation and finesse. And an so, old uh, I just got on the battlefield. Yeah. 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 Well, and Henry VIII threw the hammer in you know the, in the early Celtic games. In Thor. One of the original um, Olympic events from 1896, and yeah. yeah, it was used in war and plenty of uh, work. Plenty of pioneers used hammers to make their way across the plains and build their their homes. Right. Right. Well, now just just to digress for a second. This is a real digression. But, you know, a lot of the pioneers were city folks, and they, they didn't know what the thing was, and they'd go, what's a hammer? Mm-hmm. What's a hammer for? Mm-hmm. And the old-timers would say, for pounding nails, you mm-hmm. dumbass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I keep me on and on, and I hope I'm not going, you know, too no, aggressive. No, no, no. It's interesting and, 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 and engaging. But, the, uh, the four years, yeah, so, you, you know. The four years you yeah, were an all-American well, that was all college years, right? Not high school and college. Uh, yeah, UC San Diego, NCAA uh, Division Three. I um, qualified for the national champions my first year that I went out. And um, typically that's not something that people make until maybe their junior year. And uh, I had a personal best at the national championships placed fourth. And then I won uh, two 
championships and broke the all-time record. What was uh, it? The, the, my best distance in, uh, in college was 214 feet one inch. Wow. And that, that Division three record stood for 15 years, which was awesome. pretty cool. That's wow. awesome. Um, yeah, I just, I had a lot of fun. You know, I was naturally had some aptitude. I think my mechanical engineering mind and the understanding of technique to help me, you know, understand that the sophisticated movements that were required. Um, I had some, you know, good athletic aptitude, a great coach, and I worked super, super hard. So, uh, and then I developed the mindset where I, you know, was able to focus myself to compete under pressure when it, you know, when it came down and it mattered most. Okay. I had a great confidence in the coach. Um, you know, my training program, I knew if I just followed the program, then I was going to be physically prepared. And so then it was just a matter of the mental preparation for me and how I would, you know, perform at the championships each year. But then something happened and it went south from there. What happened? Well, it was a little bit of a meandering road, but I'll move through that pretty quickly. So, you know, I, I won the collegiate championship, but you guys ever heard of a professional hammer thrower? Yep. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, Probably not. Yeah, that's why no. they call us amateur athletes. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I haven't. I haven't heard professional. Uh, there's so no I went to work it. with that <laughs> Russian. I went to work with that. I went to work with that engineering degree, um, and was then uh, trying to pursue my Olympic dream, you know, on the side, which was really challenging. Um, but you know, I was focused and committed, and spent a couple years in Irvine um, with my first job, but then bounced back to San Diego. Um, was so focused and so determined to make it in 96 I was actually doing promotional work with the Home Depot was one of the Olympic sponsors in Atlanta uh, went back to the Olympic trials I, I made into the top 10 in 94 so I was an outside shot but you know in my mind seeing myself every day on that podium and I didn't make the team in 96 it was really kind of heartbreaking but again it wasn't like anything that I was a favorite and I still had a lot of work to improve. I was working with both the top athletes in the U.S. at that time, one of the first athletes at the Olympic Training Center in San Diego that opened in 95, uh, and then even working with Yuri Sedek and the world record holder and other you know, elite athletes uh, from around the world. So um, I, you know, I put everything that I could, my focus, my commitment, my dedication, my drive into that. Not making the team in 96, uh, I recommitted saying, you know what, I'm, it was... 26 at that point, you know, the hammer throwers tend to peak around 30. Uh, I'm going to keep going. And I gradually was improving again, staying in that top 10, feeling like I'm getting closer and closer the year before the games. Uh, things felt like they were coming together. And uh, I met this girl, fell in love, found the one, you know, I'm working full time as an aerospace engineer. I'm running a nonprofit. And then all of a sudden, yes, there's this unexpected Big, big side trip. Trip. Um, I ended up going headfirst down a flight of concrete steps and landed squarely on top of my head, shattered C5, C6 vertebrae at the base of my neck. Um, woke up in the hospital, being paralyzed from the neck down. Doctors told me I'd crushed my spinal cord. It was a miracle that I hadn't cut or severed it, which they attributed to the musculature of my neck and shoulders from you know my athleticism and yeah. the hammer throw. I had gotten up to 224 feet. That that hammer's going like 60 miles an hour and generating five, 600 pounds of force to the shoulders while you're spinning, you know, mm-hmm. like a ballerina. Without a tutu. And the doctors told me that um, I was going to be a quadriplegic, that I could expect to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair. And you said, not a chance. And we're well, going to talk about that right after our first commercial break here. Our guest, Scott Sargent, motivational speaker, former Olympian athlete. He's got the true grit, folks. We'll be back. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west, where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. 
That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Ann. Anderson, served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. You know, a woman is just like a spirited horse. You can't handle them with a tight rein. This is the Voices of the West. Oh, we're gonna let go. The cattle roundup is over. Let's go. We're gonna let go. There's no more need staying sober. We're back on Abel Franzi's The Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts, our guest is Scott Sargent, and uh, that was Charlie King in there yeah. telling you that uh, woman's like a... Uh, Whatever. I forgot it now. <laughs> That's how good it was. Well, you know, I want, I want to digress again. I want to... Todd, tell us how you, yes. got, to, you, how you got to know Sar, uh, Scott and, and why you motivated us to have him on the show. Well, at the time, I was going to my... Um, uh, I was going to my mastermind lunches, which were networking lunches here in Los Angeles for business. And uh, here came the lunch. It was once a month. And it was funny that that was a Wednesday. It was always Wednesdays. And I was really not going to go. And um, I was, I just, I was not feeling up for it. I wasn't in the mood and so on. And, but at the last minute, I said, you know, I'm going to, something said to me, oh, Todd get over yourself and go and I did and Scott was the featured speaker and you know from the moment he got up and you know here is for those of you at home who don't see him if you find him online you should you know he's he's a he looks like an Olympic athlete he's you know six one, and broad at the shoulders narrow at the hip Muscular, good-looking fella, Wrong. positive attitude, great smile. He looks like he'd be, he could be on television, and or a box he, of weenies. You know, <laughs> yeah, and I'm thinking, okay, he's a motivational speaker. Okay, you know, maybe I was right. Maybe I shouldn't have gone. Come, because you know, <laughs> I've heard many, many, many motivational speakers, and I'm looking at him and I'm going. You know, uh, for me to be invested in a, motiva- a motivational speaker uh, or somebody who gives TED Talks, it's, you got to have a challenge. And, and it just to show you, you can't judge a book by its cover and how sil- silly I was. I look at Scott and go, oh, this guy's never had a problem in his life. You know, he, he's, he's <laughs> had an easy way uh, at it, good looking, tall, athletic so on articulate educated well read so you know what's he got to tell me and he opens his talk by saying hello I'm Scott Sargent Um, I was uh, I was an Olympic athlete on my way to the Olympics and uh, 
training for that and I got injured and was uh, paraplegic and the doctors told me I'd never walk again and uh, 72 days later I walked out of the hospital. And from that moment on I was completely mesmerized and I was just like, this is impossible and I've got to know more. So from that moment on Scott had me hook, line and sinker and we've been friends since and you know he is always always upbeat and positive even on the worst days and uh, he's somebody you can rely on to have that positive outlook and uh, so on bad days I try to call Scott you know I'm sure that every time he looks at his phone and he sees my name on there uh, that it's dialing through he's thinking to himself oh god I better pull over here's Todd uh He's never somebody, you know, he's got to think to himself, oh, here's Todd. You know, he never calls me with good news. But, you know, what catastrophe happened today? And I always leave the conversation so much better off than I was in any way other. And I just, I said to myself one day, you know, we were talking about shows and let's think out of the box and so on. And I saw Scott's name in my phone a couple days later and I said, that's a show. This guy has a story that's better than anything I've ever seen on television. And uh, let's go. And here we are. Well, Scott, I got a question for you here. Uh, you know, while you were in the hospital, you know, you, you, you come out of the coma, you're laying there, the doctors have given you nothing but bad news, dire news, tragic news, and you've got to be at the all time low and your coach comes in and this guy has got to be one of the most important people in your life because he gave you the spark to fight tell us about the coach and, and just exactly you know your relationship and how and, and if you still like have a relationship with the coach because I'm sure you probably do are you there did we lose him Scott? Did he lose you? Probably fell asleep. No. Oh, sorry. I had some background noise. Oh, there we are. I muted there. We're back. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I just was, I was sort of saying, yeah, so if you can imagine there, you know, one day I'm training for the Olympics. I am, you know, um, I worked my butt off. I'm like a Greek god, right? I'm 6'2", 240 pounds, chiseled, you know, fit. Um muscle bound, you know, supreme gifted athlete. Sunburns. And um and now I'm lying here in a bed and I can't move. And the doctors are telling me, you know, sorry dude, um you're never gonna walk again and um you're lucky that you're even alive and um there's really nothing we could do. So um it was devastating. It was surreal. Uh, I you know, it's like beyond any nightmare. And um so I was swirling in so much of that and, you know, the physical trauma. Uh, I had an um, emergency surgery. They did, went and did a fusion. They took out bone fragments, put a chunk of bone in from my hip, plate and screws, stitched me back to get, you know, like a whole lot of really awesome medical interventions happened. But even with the best of medical care, I was taking to Scripps um, Memorial Hospital in La Jolla there. Um, the, the prognosis was extremely grim. And I'm lying there about a week into it uh, after I was transferred to rehab hospital at uh, Sharp Cree Mesa. My coach called on the phone actually that evening and uh, he's like, how are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean, how am I doing? Uh, this is beyond my worst nightmare. You know, forget about the Olympics. They're saying I'm never gonna walk again. And I was really overwhelmed with the despair, with the pain, with the uncertainty, the heartbreak, you know, all of it. And, you know, training the Olympics is, is a pretty luxurious pursuit when you put it in the perspective of being able to walk or move or touch or feel, you know, or even just the basics of, of your self-care. And he listened to me for a bit, but then he interrupted me and he's like, okay, well, are you going to fight and make yourself well, or are you going to give up and quit? And I couldn't believe that he would say that to me in that moment. <laughs> like, you know, you know how bad this is, but there's this Dude. Poor Filipino nurse holding the phone to my ear because I can't even hold the phone, so I couldn't hang up the phone. And I didn't want to scream F you, you know, in profanity and mm -hmm. just in an inner rage and fit to be tied. 
I think that I, both the engineer in me, but I'd like to think the Olympian in me, you know, faced with that choice, the logic was pretty simple. So what came out of my mouth was, I'm going to fight and make myself well. I'm going to recover 100% and I'm going to walk out of here. And he said, okay, great. And that's what we'll do. Did he work with really you? Imp- Did he work with oh, you? Oh, yeah. The, the rehab? Yeah, great. Uh, in, in such a huge way, and I, and I think a couple of things are, are really key in, in, in to, to highlight here. Number one is, I didn't have absolute certainty or even belief in that. But I was able to lean on his belief in the time that I wasn't able to, you know, hold that for myself. Mm. And I had met him through personal training and development work. I kind of had gotten to a point athletically where I understood that as much as I needed to improve in my technique and, and athletic realm, it was part about just the evolution of who I was becoming that was going to have me forward in my goals, both athletically and in life. And so in some of that work, you know, we understood the power of language, of a declaration. You know, we just had the 4th of July. That document, the Declaration of Independence, is what created our country coming into existence. Mm-hmm. It was through language. And there were lots of actions and things that happened, you know, and following up from that. And there was a delay from the time it was said until we actually, you know, were recognized by England as being independent, right? But that was a, a very pivotal moment, and I understood that and was able to have the alignment, the support, the belief of my coach. In the face of the experts who, you know, I, I believe all the doctors mean very, very well, and I certainly don't mean any, you know, disrespect to people. You know, spinal cord injury is a devastating injury. It's not anything easy. I, I can't sit there and say, oh, you know, no problem. I've got the easy five steps. Mm-hmm. So, but when the chips were down for me, with my training, my background, with the solidarity of my coach, I was able to hear what was being, you know, the prognosis as not the truth, but what? An opinion. And literally, they just didn't know. It was basically what came out of their mouth. There's nothing we could do. All we could do is wait and see. And I thought, well, I've never waited to see, you know, if I would graduate college or if I would you yeah. know, win the championship or, you know, like, it's the chips are down more than ever. The stakes are higher. I got I to gotta figure this out. So that they just don't know. So then, okay, well, what do you do if you don't like the doctor's second opinion? You get a second mm-hmm. opinion. Right. But all the doctors said the same stuff because that tends to be the case in that scenario. And again, thankfully, with my mindset, my training, you know, my background, I was able to hear that and say, oh, they just don't know. So then who does know? Let me find who's recovered. So I started asking everybody who's recovered from this. They all shrugged their shoulders, their heads said no one. And again, the the temptation would have been to give up and quit there, right? Because it's never been done before. But again, thankfully, with the belief in my coach, the training, the background, the the study that I learned, you know, I knew about this guy called Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And more to the point, James one of my heroes. Say, more to the point, John F. Kennedy, who said, we're going to the moon. Yep. Yeah. Right? And it was it was impossible. And he said, great, all you engineers that say it's impossible, you know all the reasons it won't work. You guys are called NASA. You're going to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, this is an and interesting... this guy named... Yeah, I was going to say, this is, this, is, this is so neat because I was thinking, you know, when you were saying about that, it's biblical, mm-hmm. the word. Yeah. And you know, and and you've got the word from the doctors, and that's that, that's that is a word of, you know, you know uh-huh. Hannah, you know, it, it's over, you know, forget uh-huh. about yeah. it, you know, it's you know nothing, you're over. And the coach says, "What are you going to do about it?" That's the word, and your response is the word again. That, and if you if you believe in the word, that gives you the power to. Fight and to and to, and you know and you know, you know, you're you're drawing on, on your life experience as an athlete as an Olympian athlete, and also your knowledge of engineering. Yep. You know because engineering is about building the impossible, solving the puzzle. Yeah. We got to do another commercial break here, so hang on the line, Scott. Scott Sargent is our guest, motivational speaker, former Olympian athlete. 
It's a good program. Todd Roberts, Harry Alexander, Bunker to France on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Paul Ash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Paul Ash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, first. First, contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 skeet fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting place courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. Now, the way this story ends is that they get married. And he goes on to become governor of the state. Never gets to Australia, but he keeps reading a lot of books about it. I get to be sheriff of this town. Then I go on to become one of the most beloved characters in Western folklore. This is the Voices of the West. Emil Franzi's The Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts in Los Angeles. Our guest is a former Olympian, uh, Scott Sargent. He's a motivational speaker now. And, uh, and a very interesting guy. A very interesting guy. He uh, decided he wasn't going to be a paraplegic anymore after suffering an accident to, where he couldn't that move. That would have been over for yeah. people. Yeah. Good move. Well, we're, glad that you, uh, we're glad that you did fight back, sir. Go ahead. Huh? Oh, me? Oh, okay. Uh, well, let's see. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that your dad was an engineer. Did he? Have, did that have anything to do with your motivating to be uh, and get an engineering degree, or was that just the way life worked out? Yeah, it's interesting, but it certainly had a big influence on me. I mean, at the time I, I graduated uh, high school, uh, my, my parents uh, both marveled that I not only excelled in science and math, but I was really good in uh, English and um, writing and I played the piano I was a bit of a renaissance kid <laughs> and um, at the time I thought I was choosing engineering freely from all the realm of possibilities my father had actually given me Gray's Anatomy when I was about 10 years old Wow! Uh, because he was wanting to nudge me in the direction of going to you know medical school and being a doctor um, and I actually read it you know it was kind of crazy <laughs> thing um, we, we had Scientific American on the on the coffee table and the same thing. So, nice. but uh, I I didn't want to commit to that much schooling, and so I thought I was choosing. Well, I chose engineering, thinking it would allow me to use all those different you know skills that I had. And um, but looking back, you know, it was a huge, huge influence. My father's father was also an engineer. You know, I want to I want to point something out here. That I thought was really neat when I come across it. Your mom. At 72 years of age, got her MBA from DePaul, and you know that speaks. I think that speaks volumes about your the family values that, that you inherited. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I don't. I, I'm not sure what you're. 
talking about getting an MBA at, yeah. at 72. Did I hear that right? Yeah, the, the fact that your mother was able to uh, pursue and, and uh, receive the MBA at her age speaks to the values of the family that were taught to you. You know, the... There's a little wire across that, and that was that my mom, my mom was an extraordinary woman for sure. Um, she retired from teaching high school chemistry of over 30 years. Wow. Um, but she, she didn't end up getting an MBA later in life. That, but that's, that's an extraordinary accomplishment, whoever did that. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's, that's why you can't trust the computers, <laughs> the Internet. Well, okay. and let me ask well, you a question. Um, in that, I mean, obviously your journey, is, it's, it's, you've already mentioned it. We have talked about it so much in the advertising of the show of your journey of overcoming the impossible, truly. But in your coaching life, and you come up against a client uh, who looks at you and goes, well, you know, um, do you ever look at them and go you, it, it to yourself, maybe, God, what you're asking of yourself for is, is impossible? And then how do you break through that? Or have you ever said to someone, well, what do you want to do? And they tell you, and you go, yeah, you can do that. And they go, no, it's impossible. I can't do it. Do you look up and go, listen, I did what I did, anything is possible, or do you try to draw on the strength from within within them, not within from with yourself? How do you go about that, That how do you achieve that motivational spark in their mind or their soul? Yeah, it's a really great question, and I, I'm, I'm throughout this conversation, you know, while I'm sharing my story, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, okay, here's this guy that, you know, I had my unique journey but how is it going to relate to the person that whatever their circumstances are that they're dealing with and inspire them to what are the steps that they need to take in the outer world or what are the shifts that they need to have in the inner world? So um, I think one of the biggest challenges in, in, in the art of coaching is knowing when and how to challenge somebody uh, and when to encourage them. So... Um, you know, as an Olympic athlete, I was used to a, a very, very high level of challenging myself and living in a pretty big gap from where I was to where I wanted to be, right? Making the bold, audacious claim that I'm going to, you know, go after a gold medal uh, in the hammer throw where the U.S. hadn't won a sport, uh, won a medal in that sport in 40 years was, was almost crazy. So, but in some ways, it, it kind of set me up for success with when I was told I would never walk. And I said, well, I'm going to walk. And they're like, well, you're crazy. You're in denial. Maybe you have a brain injury. It was already a little bit par for the course. I kind of had programmed my nervous system in that way. And, you know, I've had people that have, you know, have had spinal cord injury or other um, injuries, illness, you know, stroke, neurological challenges, what have you, you know, various life challenges. And... Um, we may go back to it or may not, but, you know, I was able to walk out of the hospital under my own power after just six weeks, mm. which is extraordinary, yes, but when somebody looks at me and says, well, you know, it's it's been six months or six years, I'm like, well, but did you train for 20 years beforehand mm -hmm. to prepare yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, nutritionally with the team, with the coach, with the, you know, to be able to apply those things immediately at the moment of crisis? And if not, then well, maybe there are some things you could learn and, and work with. So it's, it's twofold, but absolutely, no matter what, um, I'm, I'm going to stand in. You can't tell me it's not possible. Mm -hmm. You can tell me I don't want to. I'm not willing to do the work. I don't want to risk the disappointment. You know, I'll have empathy and compassion for that. But my, you know, my, one of my overriding commitments as a coach I have this acronym, Abe. Abraham Lincoln was one of my favorite presidents. Always be empowered, A-B-E, always be empowered. Right. So it's like, what does it take moment by moment, no matter what you're dealing with in your outer world circumstances, what's going on in the inside, that you have choices, that you have freedom to move and act. Um, and if you can't find that in yourself, then you gotta get help from outside yourself. Maybe you have an established relationship with a coach or it's a friend you know, a loved one or someone random, or, you know, whatever it is, we've got to find ways sometimes to get beyond ourselves. So did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. I've got, I've, but I have a new question for you. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things about being an athlete 
is competition. But when you're an athlete doing hammer throw, you're in competition with yourself. You're not, you know, yeah, you're competing against the other team, but it's just like golf. You're playing against yourself. You're not playing against somebody else. And that has to be an education in itself, learning how to overcome yourself, which is what you did with you, you know, when you came back from the paralysis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that that's a, a lifelong journey for all of us, um, you know, to the level that we choose to, to pursue it, right? So, um, and that's a function of our goals, you know, where we're at in life, what we've accomplished and our aspirations, um, and as well as our challenges, right? positive and negative forces and, and the things better. that were acting upon us from, from the outside as well as inside. So there's a lot of challenging circumstances in the world right now. Uh, a lot of people are facing hardship and difficulty and, and, and you know, outer forces of change. Um, at the same time, it's one of the greatest times of opportunity where new fortunes are being made. You know, industries are emerging and People are able to have more um, autonomy and flexibility and freedom, you know, working virtually and and, and so forth. Um, but what does it require? It requires adaptation and, and evolution. Um, can be very hard to do on your own. Um, and that's where I'm going to say, you know, speaking from my background as an athlete, and the the value of having teams. Uh, no one in business succeeds alone. You know, no Olympian or Right. Uh, world champion ever ever wins all on their own. And maybe in that final moment of the competition, it may seem like it, but um, the movies. So I've you know I've had a, a an incredible journey through this, and maybe this is a, a, a appropriate way to segue. Um, I'll I'll bullet point some of my elements of my recovery and what got me out of the hospital. Okay. Because it was that pivotal conversation with my coach when I took the stand and I made that declaration and said, okay, I'm going to go for this with everything I got. And again, it was in desperation. It was like, oh my God, I can't imagine living the rest of my life like this. And I just, I know in my heart that I can do more than they think or that they say. So I dismissed what the doctor said. I, I created my own vision and I used what I had. I mean, not only did I see myself walking out of that hospital, I played the mental movie, you know, your champion's mindset my first key. And it starts with having that vision, you know, seeing yourself, but using all the mental training techniques and disciplines, including language, including, you know, maybe you make a vision board, you write those goals down, you say them to yourself, you record it and play it to yourself as you fall asleep at night, you know, what umpteen different strategies, but it's in, in whatever you got to do to cultivate that mindset of this, this, I can do it, this shall be and then building the support around it. So the visualization I use to refine my technique or imagine you know, winning at a competition, seeing myself doing that gold medal throw, I was then now seeing internally my nerves and my body healing, looking at my hand and willing with all my might to move my little finger, you know, wiggle my little toe to get any faintest flicker of movement <laughs> until I finally did. Uh, and the, another key... Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I like what you're saying. Oh, well, just another huge key for me is what I call nourish your nerves. So as an athlete, I, you know, I studied and worked very hard to apply nutrition to maximize my training and recovery from the workouts, you know, for maximum performance. But I had to learn how to adapt that to bringing my nervous system back online. When I got my wits about me, one of the first things I said was I don't want any more pain meds. They're like, well, you can't stop. You're on this, like, super potent stuff. And I'm like, no, dude, that, that's suppressing the nerve function, the very <laughs> nerves that I need to get back online. Right, right, right. I got, you know, a, a potentially very, very limited window of which to, to maximize this recovery. You keep pushing those things down, I may never get it back. Right. And my thought was I'd rather feel the pain. Mm-hmm. That would tell me something's working, mm-hmm. right? And um, And I understood that. So, you know... Doctors are really good at what they're good at. They're good at medical care. Their, their primary tools, though, are, are medication and, and surgery. The body is what heals itself. Right. And through, Scott, you know, my sports injuries and back in... Sorry, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to ask you that I've had my own injuries and dealt with my own surgeries from those injuries. And my experience of doctors, which you just hit on, which I think is so powerful, which is they're trained to do their job. But the one thing they don't teach in medical school, and I only heard this and understood it after a doctor told me this, because I was complaining about my doctor. He said, Todd, the one thing they don't teach in medical school is bedside manner. <laughs> they either have it as you have it as a human being or they don't. They either have compassion or they don't. They either communicate that or they can't. And I'm sure you experienced a lot of that. Well, and yeah, and I, and I think, you know, I think it's a noble profession. So what I'd like to highlight, I think, that could be most useful for, for people listening in perhaps, is that I understood that I was responsible. I was responsible for how my life was going to go. And I wasn't going to turn that responsibility over to the doctors or anybody else. I use them you know, as expert advisors, I use the resources and tools, I listen to their opinions, but then I, I knew I had the right to direct my own care, and I knew that I had already um, learned a lot of tools and, and resources that were beyond what our current medical system just uh, employs. Uh, so one example here is that, you know, tongue in cheek, who thinks hospital food is either tasty or healthy? Right? <laughs> it's like a universal. <laughs> and what could be more crazy at a time when our body is under whatever stress or trauma that we need it most, we would, we would think we'd have the utmost, at least the options, okay? I went to the Olympic Training Center, and who's an Olympic sponsor? McDonald's. They're serving hamburgers and fries and shakes and, and soda pop at the Olympic Training Center. You know, I didn't need any of that stuff. Right. So I'm in the hospital now, the chips are down more than ever. I'm like, I can't eat this crap. Mm, I scratched out all the stuff on the menu. I wrote in my stuff and they're like, mm -hmm. they finally sent the head of nutrition. We can't do this for you, Scott. I'm like, okay, fine, then I'll bring in my own food. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, well if yeah. you can't feed me what I eat, I can't eat this stuff. Right. You know what's and so amazing? literally. What's amazing is the intuition that you had, you know, the intuition to go, no, no more pain meds because I know what it does to the body. The intuition to go, no, your your diet is a, is not a diet. It's just it's just something that satiates me. Uh, and you know you you see this repeatedly, and then you hear it in what you're saying. It's intuition, knowing, and then understanding and implementing. And with that, we have to take our final break. Here on Amo Francis of Voices of the West, we'll be back with much more right after these messages. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 
I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldier's Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. Well, if you hung around long enough, it's time for you to move on. That just happens to be your opinion. I'm backing up my opinion. Now make tracks or eat smoke. If I see you around here tomorrow, start shooting. This is the Voices of the West. Riding down to Santa Fe, just beyond the mountains and across the way. See that sun hang low in the west, or the land I'm loving the best. We're back on Emil Francis of Voices of the West. Yeehaw is right, guys. Oh, that's good music. Johnny Bond there, riding down Santa Fe Way. Todd Roberts is in Los Angeles. Our guest is a former Olympian, uh, Scott Sargent. He's a motivational speaker. We're going to switch gears now and uh, justify the remaining, uh, what, 12 minutes of the show here, six minutes of the show. Uh, what's your favorite Western, Scott? Oh, my gosh. What's my favorite Western? You caught me a little off guard with that ah, question. That was, uh, that was our plan. What? <laughs> That's good, though. That's good. Um <laughs> That was a good one. I like that or, one too. Or, or favorite westerns, if they're if it's plural. Yeah, TV, books, uh, western artists, yeah. poets, cowgirls. Your favorite, gonna, favorite cowgirl. You know. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll touch on a couple real quickly. But you know, I, one of the things that I remember the, the TV show Bonanza was always one of my favorites. Yeah, and okay. I think you know the Little House on the Prairie, um, the Waltons. I you know grew up with a lot of those things when I was younger. And you, then, of you, course, you some of the up, more action-oriented westerns as I was I as I got older. And you grew up with the High um, Chaparral as well, right? That's yes, right. I I love the I I still use in my coaching work the expression the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when I had this perspective when I was in the hospital, I think it's a pretty pretty valuable life lesson here because. I mean, in any field, in any endeavor in life, you've got the good, the bad, the ugly. Just because the doctor in front of you or the tax accountant or whoever they might be have that, you know, certification, it doesn't mean they're the best in their craft. Yeah. And that comes back to that personal responsibility of you've got to be in a place of discernment when you go to consult with someone like that, exactly what you're doing. You're consulting, you're getting their expertise and their information, but when you turn your will and your fate over to somebody else, you better be really confident that they are an expert and they're going to, you know, take mm-hmm. care of you. Mm-hmm. So I, that, that's the point of caution and, and the teaching point in there. But, um, yeah, I remember Jeremiah Johnson. We talk about True Grit. And that was another one where, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, he's this lone mountain man that goes through a, a really painful transition but lives a, a, a very beautiful life in the face of hardship. Um, and then, you know, Dances with Wolves and, and Last of yeah. the Mohicans. Okay. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Stand out to me. Right. I, you know, I grew up in Scouts and, and have a great love for the outdoors. Um, and, and you know, uh, my heart goes to the direction of wanting to preserve our habitat and species and, and the natural beauty and wonder. Um, 
so you know those are those are important values for me as well. Scott Sargent, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, it's been a very big pleasure to speak with you. It's been it's been yeah. an thank you guys so much. It's been really. an inspiration. And very I, yeah I, yeah. I motivated. How about you, Bunker? Well, <laughs> you know me. Yeah, I know you. Uh, no, uh, yeah, yeah. This this is, this no, is excellent. This program. is spiffy. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm hurrying to look at the calendar here to see who's on for next week on uh, uh, the show. And the calendar is trying to load. Trying to load. What's it trying to do? It's, it's trying, trying to, to load. Oh, it shows nobody for next nobody. week. Nobody. So, I don't know. We'll figure out something to uh, yeah, we'll talk about next time we get together here on Amal Franzi's Voices of the West. Until then, thank you all for joining us. That's it for us right now. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and Todd Robertson, Los Angeles. And that's 78, 79, and 80. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West. 